Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Jody Magnus for a conversation about the famous story of Masada, that is, the story of the Jewish resistance to a Roman siege at Masada in the fortress's eventual fall. This story has gripped the interests of religious and scholarly minds for many years and continues to do so. Dr. Magnus is keen and distinguished professor for teaching excellence in early Judaism in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She has co-directed excavations at Masada. And she's the author of the monograph, Masada, From Jewish Revolt to Modern Myth, published by Princeton University Press. Welcome to the call, Jody. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what is Masada? So Masada is a, uh, a mountain um, overlooking the southwest shore of the Dead Sea that was fortified uh, 2,000 years ago by King Herod the Great. And uh, it's famous in sort of Jewish history because after Herod's death, at the time of the first Jewish revolt against the Romans, which ended in 70 AD with the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple, the Second Temple, uh, a, a group of Jewish rebels made their last stand against Rome on the top of that mountain. Uh, and so that's why the mountain has sort of become famous. Okay, and we'll, we'll get to the, that famous story, that legend, um, shortly. But to create more background then, was it, was it uh, Herod the Great? Was he the person in the regime that actually created the fortress, or was it someone else? Well, not to go into too much historical detail, but the first person to fortify the top of the mountain was actually one of Herod's predecessors. Before uh, Herod was appointed client king of Judea on behalf of Rome, um, the country had been under the rule of a Jewish dynasty, descended from the Maccabees, the same people who led the, uh, the revolt that's celebrated by the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. Uh, and it was one of those Jewish kings, one of those Hasmonean kings, who first fortified the top of Masada. There's actually a debate about which one of those kings it was. Uh, and to complicate matters, there's very little, if anything, that we can identify uh, with certainty that remains on top of Masada that dates to that period. So pretty much when Herod, uh, you know, a few decades later, built his fortified palaces on top of the mountain, he pretty much uh, apparently obliterated the uh, earlier structures. Okay, and so that we can all have a visual in our minds, can you describe the mountain? What distinguishes it is it's um, flat on top, and it's isolated because it, the area along the western shore of the Dead Sea is, is very rugged. There's a, a row of, of very steep cliffs and rugged rocky cliffs that runs along the western shore of the Dead Sea. And Masada is really in that line of cliffs, but it's a mountain that's isolated from that line of cliffs on all sides. And so it's a perfect mountain to fortify because the top of it is flat, so you can build buildings on top of it and you know live there. And because since it is, uh, it, it's isolated from all the other mountains on all sides, it's very hard to get to the top. All the, all the, the whole, all, all the sides of the mountain are very steep and rugged. Mm, okay. What year approximately did you say Herod the Great refortified the 
the uh, fortress? I didn't say. But oh, okay, okay. Yeah, went, went about. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Herod uh, ruled Judea from um, 40 BC until his death in the year 4 BC. So the top of Masada would have been fortified during his reign. And uh, when he did that, he actually did a couple of things on top of Masada. He built uh, a fortification system around the top of the mountain with, with walls and towers, uh, gates. And then inside the fortified area, he built uh, different palace complexes for himself two main palace complexes, one at the northern end and one on the western side of the mountain. Was this his uh, his primary residence or did he have another residence during his Actually, reign? Actually, it wasn't even close to being his primary residence. Um, Herod had palaces all over the country. Uh, his, his main palace, I suppose, would have been the one in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the capital of his kingdom. And he actually did build himself a palace in Jerusalem uh, in the area that's now inside the old city. Um, but he also built palaces at many other sites around the country. There's uh, a famous and, and very important one at Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, which Herod built as his major port for his kingdom, serving his kingdom. Um, and he built um, uh, fortified palaces at other desert sites like Masada. Masada's in the desert on sort of the southeastern frontier of Herod's kingdom, the area of what is called the Judean desert. And there are other fortified palaces that Herod built um, along that frontier. Mm -hmm. So Masada's actually just the most famous of them. He also, I should mention, had a very important palace and maybe you could even call it his second main palace at Jericho. Um, which is sort of, if you go from Masada to Jerusalem, you, you sort of pass by Jericho on the way. Today, it's about a half an hour drive from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, and that was very important because that was where Herod would have spent a lot of time in the winter when it got cold up in Jerusalem. He could go down to Jericho, which was a desert oasis. And in fact, when Herod died in 4 BC, he died at Jericho. He was at his house in Jericho. So he would have spent a lot of time there as well. What do you think uh, Herod's interest was in Masada? Um, well, we don't actually have to guess that. We know uh, because we have the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, Flavius Josephus, mm -hmm. who is our main source of information on Herod and also on Masada. Um, and Josephus tells us that uh, Herod fortified Masada um, to protect his, the southeastern frontier of his kingdom against Cleopatra's ambitions. See, very early in his reign, when Herod became king of Judea, was appointed king of Judea by the Romans in, in 40 BC, that was thanks to the intervention of Mark Antony, uh, who, of course, was one of the very powerful people ruling Rome at that time. Um, and Mark Antony, of course, was involved with Cleopatra in Egypt, who was Cleopatra VII. And Cleopatra, as a descendant of the Ptolemies, the Greek dynasty that had ruled Egypt, um, had her eye on Herod's kingdom, the kingdom that Herod mm. had been given to rule, because once upon a time, the Ptolemies had ruled the territory that, that Herod was now ruling. So uh, Herod viewed uh, Cleopatra rightly, by the way, as a threat, um, because she was trying to regain the territory that Herod had been given. And, uh, and so Herod fortified the southeastern frontier of his kingdom against Cleopatra's ambitions. Uh, the other reason 
that Herod fortified Masada and the other desert palaces is because he he knew that he was not popular with the Jewish population in his country for various reasons. And he uh, built these fortified palaces on the frontier to serve as potential places of refuge in case of a Jewish revolt against him. The final thing is that all of these desert palaces also did serve as places where Herod could spend time in the winter when it got cold in Jerusalem, uh, even though, as I said before, Jericho would have been the main winter palace for Herod. So there's Cleopatra and Mark Antony. So Cleopatra's regime in the south, it's kind of southwest, I guess. Um, there's the the Roman uh, Republic or Empire sometime around around then, probably the Empire by then. Um, so 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 there's a lot going on for in Herod's regime at this point. Right. Well, and of course, by this time, so yeah, the transition from Republic to Empire technically is when, uh, you know, Octavian is awarded the title of Augustus by the Roman Senate in 27 BC. Uh, but, um, but so Herod's, you know, Herod's reign spans sort of the, the period from the late transition from the late Republic to the early Empire, right? Uh, and so, but when Herod was appointed King of Judea by the Romans, uh, Egypt was already under Roman rule, right? So the Ptolemies had lost their independence, but Cleopatra tried to use Mark Antony in order to sort of reestablish some sort of Ptolemaic, you know, control over the area, right? So she had she had Mark Antony sort of, you know, around her her finger. Hmm. Okay. So I want to clarify a point. So. King Herod and his associated kingdom of Judea. So it's under Roman rule at this point. And can you um, take a few moments and share more background about how we got to this point? So in 332 BC, the area of, I'm going to call it Palestine. Uh, by Palestine, I'm referring to, I'm using it in the British mandatory sense of the word to refer to the area of modern Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinian territories, without it being a political statement mm -hmm. on my part. Okay, mm -hmm. so in, in uh, 332 BC, Palestine came under the rule of Alexander the Great. Um, and after Alexander died, his empire was divided up among various generals, so he had these Greek successors. And then in the middle of the second century BC, uh, a Jewish revolt broke out against one of Alexander's successors, one of Alexander's Greek successors. Uh, that is the revolt that is celebrated, the, the Maccabean revolt that's celebrated by the modern Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. And in the wake of that revolt, eventually uh, the Jews, the inhabitants of Judea, the area around Jerusalem, were able to establish an independent Jewish kingdom uh, in the area of Palestine, the area of the land of Israel, uh, which was then ruled for about a mm, hundred years by the leaders of the revolt and their successors. And that, re and that kingdom we call the Hasmonean Kingdom. Uh, in 63 BC, the Hasmonean Kingdom was annexed by Rome. It was, it was taken over by Rome. That, that annexation was, was conducted by the Roman general Pompey. And then when the Romans come in, they make a series of adjustments to try, you know, to, to decide how to administer the territory. They end up dismembering the Hasmonean kingdom. Uh, and um, so basically the Hasmoneans, you know, lose the throne, right? 
Um, but there's still plenty of Hasmoneans around, and there were conflicts on and off between Rome and the Hasmoneans over the course of the next several decades. Uh, and um, then in and then in 40 BC, the Parthians uh, overran Syria, Palestine. The Parthians were were located further to the east. They were basically the successors of the ancient Persians. And of course, Rome throughout the period of the empire had a series of wars with the Parthians on mm. you know to the east. So in 40 BC, the Parthians overran Syria, Palestine. They uh, set up one of the Hasmoneans on the throne. So they reestablished the Hasmonean kingdom. And uh, at the time the Parthians invaded, Herod uh, fled for his life to Rome. Um, and that's, this is 40 BC. This is when he then appears before the Roman Senate and the Romans agree to appoint him king of Judea through the support and intervention of Mark Antony. And they send him back and he spends the next three years till 37 BC fighting the Parthians fighting the Hasmoneans, the, right? Um, and then finally, you know, the last, the, the end of that sort of war uh, is in 37 BC when he takes Jerusalem after a prolonged siege uh, with the assistance of the legate in Syria. Um, and then he starts to rule the kingdom. So Herod was always, uh, you know, worked in tandem with the Romans, right? He, he and, and he was always very careful to show his loyalty to whoever his Roman master was, so to speak, right? So up until the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, uh, Herod was very loyal to Mark Antony, right? Uh, after the Battle of Actium, he rushed to Rhodes to meet with Octavian and pledged his loyalty to Octavian, who of course later becomes Augustus, uh, and uh, manages to persuade Octavian to reconfirm him as king of Judea, which Octavian did, and then Octavian even enlarged the size of, of the kingdom that Herod had been given to rule. So Herod throughout his life was was very loyal to, to the Romans. Okay, so what what was the legend of Masada? The legend, you, well, I guess, or myths, right? The Masada myths, what are the myths? Um, I, I think that, that there are uh, a number of myths about Masada, but mm -hmm. most of the myths about Masada concern not the beginning of the story, which is where we are, but rather the end of the story of Masada. So the beginning of the story, of course, is Herod, the great, he builds these amazing fortified palaces on top of the mountain. Uh, people who visit Masada today, most of what you see up there is what Herod built. And they're richly decorated palaces with beautiful wall paintings and mosaic floors and stuccoed walls. It's, it's quite remarkable to see this in the middle of the desert. Uh, but what happens is that Herod then dies in the year 4 BC. And 70 years after his death, in the year 66 AD, a Jewish revolt broke out against the Romans, which we call the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. And that revolt ended four years later, officially ended four years later in 70 AD, when the Romans uh, took Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem ended, and they destroyed the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, which was the second temple. And, you know, that's officially the end of the revolt. But with the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70, there were still three former uh, fortified palaces of Herod that were still holding out in the hands of Jewish rebels. Uh, one of them is Herodium, which is very close to Bethlehem. It's a site where actually Herod was buried after his death. Uh, the second one is called Machiris on the eastern side of the Dead Sea in modern Jordan, which is interesting because uh, it is the site where uh, 
Herod the Great's son, Antipas, had John the Baptist beheaded. Uh, and the third was Masada. And so after, after 70, the Romans sent troops to take these three holdouts. And they first marched against Herodium, which apparently fell pretty much immediately. They then marched against Machiris, which fell with after a siege. The siege was never completed, but there was a siege there. And finally, either in the year 72 or 73 AD, the Romans arrived at the foot of Masada. So it's the last stand of Jewish resistance in the country against Rome, mm. uh, at which point there were 967 men, women, and children, Jewish, Jewish refugees, basically, on top of the mountain. And the Romans send a force of approximately 8,000 soldiers to take these last holdouts. They set up a siege. Um, they, they surround the base of the mountain with a circumvallation wall, a stone wall to cut off the mountain. Um, they set up a series of camps at the base of the mountain to house their soldiers and to guard potential routes of escape. And then build an assault ramp up the western side of the mountain. Uh, and the assault ramp was constructed so that they could put a uh, battering ram into place and break through the fortification wall that Herod had built at the top. Uh, and they did that. They, they built this assault ramp. They erected a, a battering ram up on top of a big sort of stone platform um, at the top of the assault ramp and batter through the wall. And uh, at this point, this is where you ask, why is the story important? So this is, the, this is the whole thing, is what happens now. Our only source of information on what happens at this point, I mean, up until this point, we actually have, so let me backtrack. Our only source of information on the siege of Masada the Roman siege of Masada is Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. But we have Josephus's description of the siege, the Roman siege, but we also have archaeological remains of the siege. So when you go to Masada, you can see the siege works. The assault ramp is still there. You can see where Herod's fortification wall is broken through at the top of, this, of, of the assault ramp. So up to this point where the Romans break through the wall, you know, we have not just Josephus's description, but we have archaeological evidence that is consistent with Josephus's description of events. What happens after this, at this point, is where things become controversial, because at this point we enter a part of the story that archaeology can neither prove nor disprove. That is, archaeology, the archaeological evidence cannot determine whether what Josephus says happened next is true or not we don't have there's no way the rate the archaeology is not equipped to answer that kind of question so what josephus says is that when the jews saw that the romans were going to break through the wall and the mountain was going to fall to them the leader of the rebels on top of the mountain a man named elazar ben yair convened all of the men together and uh, gave them the speech in which he convinced them that it would be better for them to die at their own hand basically to commit mass suicide then to give themselves up alive to the Romans. And according to Josephus's account, that's what they did. They, they, the men took their wives and children and killed them. And then the men all drew lots. And out of the men, 10 men killed all the other men. And then those 10 remaining men drew lots again. And out of them, one man killed the other nine and then finally killed himself. And so when the Romans came up, everybody was dead. So, okay, so if everybody committed suicide, how do we know that? that story. So Josephus says that not everybody actually committed suicide. He says that a couple of old women overheard the plans to commit suicide, and they hid out in a cistern on the side of the mountain with some children and gave themselves up alive to the Romans, and then somehow either directly or indirectly, 
the story was told to Josephus, who, again, is our only ancient source on this story. We don't have any other ancient author that tells the, the story of the siege and fall of Masada. Um, for example, we have the, you know, the, an account of the siege and fall of Jerusalem uh, from the Roman historian Tacitus. Right? But we don't have a single other source that tells about what happened at the end of the fall of Masada. So there's a lot of controversy in recent years about, about this mass suicide story. And I will just point out that uh, one of my most distinguished colleagues uh, pointed out to me that technically it's not a mass suicide, right? It's a mass homicide, actually. Uh, and that um, and that although uh, <laughs> it's interesting, one of the things that you know people tend to get stuck on, especially uh, Jewish people get stuck on when, when we talk about the mass suicide of Masada is that, that Jewish law prohibits suicide, right? So this story becomes very famous, at least in modern times, right? In the 20th century becomes very famous, sort of Masada becomes this kind of symbol of resistance for the modern state of Israel. Uh, and how is it, you know, that we, we would glorify suicide, which is, you know, prohibited by Jewish law. So one of my very distinguished colleagues pointed out to me, well, homicide is also prohibited by Jewish law. So either mm. way, anyway, well, mm. what's happened in, in recent years is a uh, number of scholars, the stories become controversial, not just because of the question of whether, you know, an episode like this, whether you want to call it a mass suicide, a mass homicide, whether that should in fact be the kind of symbol that you want for the Jewish people in the state of Israel. Not only that, but a number of scholars have pointed out that this story or theme of mass suicide recurs over and over again in Josephus. So there are a number of, of times when Josephus tells about, you know, the siege or whatever, the fall of a place, uh, Gamla in the Golan or Jotapada in Galilee, you know, there are a number of places where Josephus tells a story and it ends with something like this, where mm -hmm. everybody decides they'd rather commit mass suicide than give themselves up. And what these scholars have questioned is whether, in fact, this was actually happening or all these people actually, you know, choosing to die at their own hand, or could it be that this was a literary device uh, being used to make the story more exciting? And if, if it was, then it certainly worked because we wouldn't be here talking about Masada if it wasn't for that story. That's what made Masada famous. So uh, that's what's become controversial. And, and one of the things that I do in my book, you know, uh, is explore, you know, this sort of story, but also try to explain, uh, so explain sort of the, the, the use or misuse of archaeology in it, which is to say that uh, people wonder, well, you know, can't, can't archaeology prove or disprove? whether the mass suicide took place, right? And the problem is, is that, as I said a little while ago, archeology span is not equipped to answer that question because the archeological remains can be interpreted differently depending on how you interpret Masada, uh, how you interpret Josephus. So for example, um, just to give a couple of examples. So uh, when, I should actually back up and say, one of the things that feeds into this whole mythology and, and sort of the importance of Masada in, in sort of the modern, you know, Zionist endeavor and history of Israel is the fact that, that Masada was excavated in the middle of the 1960s by arguably the most famous archaeologist in modern Israel, and that was Yigael Yadin, who was also chief of staff of the Israeli army at a certain point in his career. And so the fact that Yadin was himself such a larger-than-life figure, right, and he's the one who excavates Masada and then writes this sort of popular book that becomes, you know, famous worldwide, 
all of that kind of feeds into, you know, raising the profile of, of the story of Masada. Um, so when Yadin excavated the top, and oh, I should say one more thing. So when Yadin excavated the top of Masada in the 1960s, at that time, scholars tended to understand Josephus literally, right? They tended to take Josephus at his word. So if Josephus said all the Jews committed mass suicide in this way, that's what everybody thought. And that's what Yadin thought. You have to understand we're all the product of our time. And so Yadin's understanding of Josephus was, was quite literal, and that's because he was a product of his time. Since then, scholars have become much more skeptical uh, of you know, reading sources like Josephus literally to the point where, in fact, some uh, scholars today go to the exact opposite extreme and say that there's no history to be gained from reading Josephus, but okay. Mm. Uh, anyway, um, so, so when Yadin excavated the top of Masada and he believed that you know, this mass suicide took place the way that Josephus describes it, um, he was expecting to find things that, that sort of prove that, right, in the archaeology. Uh, and so one of the things that, that, you know, everybody was curious about is, well, what, where are the 967 bodies? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> are there 967 skeletons up there? Because there were 967 Jews up there. Well, 960, let's say. Uh, well, he didn't find the remains of, of 960-some skeletons. In fact, not even close to it. Yadin found three skeletons buried in the lowest terrace of the Northern Palace complex, a man, woman, and child who apparently were Jewish rebels, and another group of skeletons, indeterminate number, maybe somewhere between five to 25, in a cistern on the southeast side of the mountain that it's not clear that they're even Jewish. They could be Romans, there was a Byzantine monastery up there, they could be Byzantines, not sure, but that's it. He didn't find any other skeletons. So what did Yadin say? Yadin's explanation was, well, okay, so there's a mass suicide, the Romans come up, they break through the wall, everybody's lying around dead. And what did the Romans do? Well, they left a garrison on top of Masada for a couple of decades after the after the siege ended. So they would have gathered all of these, you know, rotting corpses and, and either burned them or buried them in a mass grave, a mass pit somewhere. So that's why Yadin said, okay, we didn't find now let's imagine for a minute that there is no mass suicide. The, the Romans break through the wall and there's fighting and some people are killed and some are led away into slavery. Same thing. The bodies would have been disposed of. So that's one example. There's another example. So if you go to Masada, if, if, many, if any of your listeners have been there, I'm sure they've seen this spot. There's a room uh, next to the large bathhouse in the Northern Palace Complex where your guide will show you where the lots were found. So in that room, Yadin found a group of inscribed potsherds, what are called ostraca, and they're inscribed with names in Hebrew, in ink, written in ink, with names in Hebrew. And very interesting, one of the names is Ben Yair, and according to Josephus, Salazar Ben Yair was the leader of the Jewish rebels on top of the So, uh, So Yadin identified this group of inscribed potsherds as the lots. What's the problem? The problem is that there are more than 10 in the group, Actually, there were 12, but one had never been completed, so Yadin discarded it, but he's still left with 11, so what did he say? He said, well, you know, one of them has been your ear. We can kind of disregard that, too. I don't know why. But anyway, so he gets to 10. Well, eventually, those inscribed potsherds were published by a different uh, scholar um, who pointed out that, in fact, inscribed potsherds were found all over the top of Masada at the time of the revolt, where they were used for different purposes. Uh, like meal ration tickets. 
And so uh, that scholar, uh, Joseph Navet, was unable to conclude that these were, in fact, the lots. They might be lots. I mean, depends on how you interpret the sequence, right? They might be lots, but they could be something else altogether. Uh, and so, uh, so, in fact, what I try to point out in my book is that archaeology is not equipped to prove or disprove the historicity of Josephus's mass suicide story, right? Archaeology does, in fact, I think, show that Josephus's description of the siege is largely accurate. Uh, but mass suicide, mass homicide, whatever, it, it doesn't, archaeology is not equipped to answer that question. What was, um, can you share more about Josephus's background, what we know about him, and what was his relationship to the actual siege itself? Right. So Josephus had no direct relationship to the siege. He was, he was not at the siege. So Josephus would have heard about the siege from uh, a second, you know, first-hand or second-hand source, right? Okay. Uh, but Josephus was a, a uh, aristocratic Jewish man born in Jerusalem uh, in um, 37 AD. Uh, when the revolt broke out against the Romans in 66, the Jews formed a provisional government and Josephus, whose Jewish name was Joseph, Joseph son of Matthias, uh, was put in charge of one of the, the districts that the, that the rebels divided the country into, and that's Galilee. Um, when the Romans then sent forces to put down the revolt under under a general named Vespasian. Vespasian mustered his troops up in Syria in Antioch, which was the capital of the province, and marched southwards. And the first part of the country that, that Vespasian marched against was Galilee, the area under Josephus's command. So Galilee falls pretty quickly to Vespasian. Uh, Josephus ends up in this kind of mass suicide scenario, and he's he ends up Hold up in a cistern on the side of a, a the last sort of remaining fortress under his command in Galilee, and all the other soldiers in in the cistern with him decided they wanted to commit mass suicide instead of give themselves up alive to the Romans. They form a suicide pact. They draw lots, and Josephus somehow, as he says himself, through fate or contrivance, draws the last lot, and he does not commit suicide. He gives himself up alive to the Romans. He's taken to Vespasian. Uh, he apparently predicts that Vespasian one day will become emperor of the Roman Empire, which was not so far-fetched in the year 67 AD, which was, of course, uh, three years after the Great Fire in Rome when Nero was extremely unpopular. And sure enough, a year later, Nero is dead, and the following year, 69, Vespasian is proclaimed emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, so Vespasian, anyway, when Josephus makes this prediction in 67, takes Josephus into captivity. Uh, Josephus actually um, accompanied the Romans in the siege of Jerusalem in 70. By then, Vespasian's back in Rome as emperor. His son Titus, his older son Titus, was the one who conducted the siege of Jerusalem in 70. Josephus was there, apparently trying to convince the Jews to surrender by walking around outside the walls of the city and sort of, you know, kind of like with a megaphone and saying, well, it'll be, you know, up to, you know, you should surrender to the Romans. Resistance is futile. And the Jews apparently threw stones down on him. Uh, anyway, so he's there in 70 when, when Jerusalem falls. But after the end of the revolt, after, after 70, Josephus then went to live in Rome 
He actually spent approximately the last 30 years of his life as a diaspora Jew in Rome, uh, where he becomes a client of the imperial family. Um, he, he Latinizes his name, he adopts their name, Flavius Josephus, because of course Vespasian uh, established the Flavian dynasty. He was commissioned by the Flavians to write a series of history books of the Jewish people. Hmm. And the most important ones that we have are the Jewish War, which is the story of the First Revolt, and uh, Jewish Antiquities, which is a sort of account of Jewish history beginning with creation. Um, and it is from the Jewish War that we learn the story of Masada. So the Jewish War, which was the first big work that he wrote, um, is a massive seven-book account that Josephus chose to end with the fall of Masada, basically. Uh, and it's very interesting that that he ends this the story of the of the revolt right with the fall of Masada. Um, again, since we don't have any other Roman sources that that tell the story of the fall of Masada, the siege and fall of Masada, and you have to ask yourself why is it that mm. that no other no Roman author tells that story, right? Why why not? And then there's a couple of possible reasons. Um, one reason possibly is that, you know, the Romans weren't particularly interested in glorifying the story because they didn't want other native peoples living under their rule to get the same idea, you know, in revolt. Possibly. I actually think it's more likely because um, in the eyes of the Romans, this was just a minor mopping up operation uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, didn't deserve, wasn't all that interesting, right? Didn't deserve a lot of attention. So anyway, um, that, that's him. And so Josephus then lives in Rome till his death, somewhere estimated around 100 AD. Hmm, okay. So are you still working on Masada as a project or are you on to a new project yet? Yeah, no, no, on to the next thing, actually. Uh, what are you working on? So, yeah, uh -huh. um, well, this is actually embarrassing. So the Masada book, which I love doing, and I, I people who read the book will see that I, I co-directed excavations in the room in siege works at Masada in the summer of 1995. Um, and, you know, I also have a long history with Masada. I worked as a tour guide in that area for a number of years and I've been there many times. Uh, so I, I have a lot of interest in Masada. Um, but no, that, that book, you know, I'm done with that. Um, not to say I will never return to working on Masada. Actually, I hope I will. But my next, uh, so that book on Masada was not my idea. It was uh, a very consistent editor at, mm. at Princeton University Press who, who decided I should write a book about Masada for this series that they have and literally spent years trying to convince me to do it until I, <laughs> I finally gave way. So my next book is the same kind of thing. It's a very persuasive editor, at this time at Oxford University Press, who literally for years, I mean, I'm not kidding you, I tried to put him off for years, mm -hmm persuaded me against my better judgment to write a book on Jerusalem, um, which is much, much more difficult than writing a book about Masada, because mm -hmm. Masada is a finite story. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. It's very tidy, very neat. Jerusalem is infinite. Uh, and even though I'm only going to go up to the Crusades, still, I mean, each chapter alone, it's so complicated and so unending and so, like, hard to get a handle on. And how do you present this complexity because it's a trade book like like the Masada book how do you present this overwhelming complexity right to a non-specialist audience even if it's an educated audience but not you know a specialist archaeologist archaeology audience so that's the next 
that's the next project, and I'm in the midst of it. The, the, the upside of COVID has been that I've been sitting mm-hmm. at home for the last year, and I've been able to get a leg up on, you know, make some really good headway. But it's it's just an enormous um, undertaking, and uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a little scary, actually, because <laughs> it's so big. Yeah, it'll keep you busy for the next few years. Um, will you need to travel to Israel quite a bit? Um, well, you know, yeah, I, I, well, okay. You know, look, I work in Israel. I'm usually there every summer. Um, I, uh, I haven't been last summer and this summer because of COVID, but once they open up the country, I'm hoping to get over there. I will, I do, when I signed my book contract, I signed it knowing that next year, 21, 2021, 2022, I would have a, a leave about, you know, a sabbatical. Um, and so fortunately, I've been awarded um, a Fulbright to Israel for next spring. And I'll, I'll be spending the, the spring semester there, and then I'll stay through the summer for my dig. Uh, so I will be able to, so the idea is by that point to have pretty much the draft of the book completed, and at that point to be going in order to fill in specific gaps, right? The, you know, things, resources that I can't get a hold of here in the US, um, to, you know, visit sites, and also, you know, there's always, there, that's, this is the thing with, with Jerusalem. There's always new discoveries, right? So try and uh, get up to date on, you know, what's the latest going on in Jerusalem and my book as up to date as possible. So yeah, that's kind of the plan. Well, I wish you well on the new ambitious monograph, Jody. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. So if anyone listening, if you'd like to pick up Dr. Magnus's uh, monograph, Masada from Jewish Revolt to Modern Myth, uh, Princeton University Press. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the episode's associated subpage at IthacaBound.com. Jody and everyone listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.